1: Broadcast meteorologists are often the face of severe weather as they are the first people we see when severe weather is expected. However, there is a larger network of people from broadcasters, emergency management, law enforcement... And state and local officials who must work together to best serve the community before and after a disaster. Today's guest is Kim Coloco McLean, a societal impacts researcher from the Cooperative Institute for Mesoscale Meteorological Studies. Her focus is to gather and share the human stories that unfold during severe weather events. And with each interaction, she drives to learn how our network of communicators can improve the warning decision process. This promises to be an IOF discussion. So let's get started. Kim, thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me, Dr.
1: Shepard. Yeah, well, this is great, and we you better call me Marshall. <laughs> not <laughs> Dr. Shepherd. We know each other well, and I hopefully I can call you Kim as well. Uh, but uh, Dr. Dr. McLean is certainly Coloco McLean is certainly one of the top experts in this field. I am thrilled that we are able to have her on. You you know her from many different things, perhaps if you listen to Weather Brain, she's a, a frequent contributor and uh, and host on Weather Get Brains. Uh, let me give you some. Of her credentials. She's a research scientist and societal applications coordinator at the Cooperative Institute for Mesoscale Meteorological Studies and the National Severe Storms Lab. She's been there since March 2017. She was also a UCAR postdoctoral research researcher and policy advisor at NOAA's Office of Weather and Air Quality. And a little birdie told me that you were the first social scientist in that office so that's a uh, I, i'm not surprised this excellent colleague being a pioneer and and many great things to come in in her career but you you probably have heard uh, the story here the first guest I uh, question i always ask my guests how did you get into meteorology
0: oh sure well my story is very similar to how so many meteorologists get into it i experienced a severe weather event when I was young. I grew up in the Chicago suburbs just outside of Plainfield, Illinois, a place that um, weather aficionados will know well. But there was a, an F5 tornado that struck that community while I was playing outside. Um, it was a bit of a surprise event. It was an event that shook the weather service certainly and, um, and definitely impacted me. And at that time, even as young as I was, I recognized that I wanted to be part of the solution. I wanted to help and assure that things like that didn't happen anymore, that people didn't experience these terrible catastrophic tornadoes with little warning um, and, and potentially little capability to do things to protect themselves.
1: And you are not only a meteorologist, uh, you are also a geographer. You kind of wear multiple hats. Uh, did that just kind of come along with things or how did you kind of uh, develop this sort of, sort of dual
0: expertise? Yeah, I developed the the dual expertise in the behavioral sciences and physical sciences almost by accident. As an undergrad, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it, but I knew I was very interested in um, human behavior from from high school, I was really, I loved psychology and I loved meteorology and especially um, I was interested in decision science. So in undergrad, I was majoring in both economics and in meteorology and I had minors in psychology and communication and, and German of all things. Um, but I, I really didn't know how to put it all together until I came and did a research internship here at the Severe Storms Lab. Um, They run a program for undergraduates called the Research Experiences for Undergrads REU program, and I worked with Dr. Harold Brooks and an economist, Dr. Um, Dan Sutter, and at the time he was at OU, and I worked on the economic impacts of tornadoes, and from there, it just all gelled for me. I, I decided to pursue both things because I loved both individually, and knowing that there was an intersection place where those two things came together has just been a great joy.
1: Yeah, that, um, amazing uh, background to many of the people that you mentioned. Dr. Harold Brooks, for example, former guest of Weather Geeks and outstanding colleagues as well. I, I, I don't think I remember, perhaps I did, that you actually had a BS or were studying economics as well. <laughs> I want to yeah. circle, yeah, yeah. I want to circle back to with all of your expertise because that's why we wanted you to come on Weather Geeks. We're taping this in early March, and there were tragic. Tornadoes in Nashville, as you well know, Kim, and I, I believe at the at, at last I heard there were 24 fatalities and perhaps uh, several people still missing as a tornado plowed through urban areas of Nashville, but then also not so urban areas as er, areas as well, and I believe Putnam County or, or other parts of Tennessee. I just want to kind of stage set here by getting your initial thoughts and reactions to this as a meteorologist, but also as a social, societal impacts researcher?
0: Sure. Well, when things like this happen, I think all of us who work in this intersection place, we immediately get energized around a couple of different questions. Um, One in particular that's especially of interest to me working at the lab is about what what was the continuous flow of information getting to the public like? What messages were they getting, um, especially before they went to bed? So one of the things that is so striking about this event was that it happened overnight. This is a, a kind of event that the Southeastern United States faces often and has been a fixture of the Vortex Southeast Research Program. And I can't help but wonder if, um, as people were going to bed, if the tornado threat was receiving very much highlight, if people were aware that they needed to be ready, um, or if they were not aware that it was going to be anything more than a severe threat, and if they were taken a bit by surprise. One of the things that we're working on at the lab that we're hoping can help in these situations, it's a program called FACETS, Forecasting a Continuum of Environmental Threats. And the basic idea is that we can offer gap-filling information. So offer, you know, maybe for the people of Tennessee, before they went to bed, they could have seen something that said, hey, actually, in your region, um, for the next three to four hours, we're kind of concerned about tornado potential lingering. Um, So you might want to be sure to have a way to receive information. You might wanna be staged close to your your shelter spot, um, something like this. And we're still doing some of the the diagnosis on the meteorological side to know what what was the messaging. Um, The next phase and what we're all thinking about on the social sciences side is trying to get the story from the public, trying to understand the messages they were receiving, um, what they thought was likely to occur, and how they made decisions in light of that evidence.
1: And and I I, I appreciate that yeah, that's an excellent uh, set of advice there. That's coming out of this uh, facets program. I, I had written something earlier in the week as well, um, sort of sort of along the lines of what you just mentioned. In that the challenge with this event seemed to be that there were certainly some meteorological information on a severe weather threat uh, in that region uh, overnight, but the probability of tornadoes was low. It wasn't zero, but it was low. But I made the argument that even though it was low, there was a certainly enough information that people perhaps should get in the habit of being weather aware before they turn in for the evening. And it sounds like FACETS is sort of, sort of heading in that, that direction in terms of uh, awareness and communications resources, perhaps in those time periods, you know, zero to three hours after bed
0: yeah that's certainly a hope um, and of course, I think our field suffers from armchair quarterbacking to some degree it 's really easy to look back and say, Oh well, of course we should have seen this um, and in, in real time it's it's not always so obvious, especially in these these marginal cases you can't you can't catastrophize every possible thing that might occur um, if it's right. if it's low probability. You know, it's a tough situation, and there is some humility I think we might have to have in the face of that. But that said, it is certainly worth an investigation, and um, we're already talking at the lab about the potential to make this kind of case a use case um, where we see, you know, if we brought in people to try to create these new technologies, could the advice that had gone out have been a little bit different than what um, was available in this case?
1: Now, now speaking of that, I, I, I'm aware of another program called the Probabilistic Hazard Information. Mm-hmm. Is that program? I guess it's called PHI. We 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 know we love acronyms in our field, but the <laughs> PHI is that something that in a situation like this could be a step forward.
0: Yep, and that's a a great connection to make too. So that's that's part of the facets program. Is this um this product um and I, I think the. The develop, on the development side, we're still trying to work on the branding for all of this. So I completely appreciate how this might be a little tough to follow, but we're trying to develop um, probabilistic products that span different spatiotemporal scales. So phi, um, PHI, is envisioned to be something that would be storm-based. So for a given storm, um, you right now you can receive a warning or not, and that's pretty much the information that you get. But behind the scenes, forecasters can actually be thinking um, a lot about that storm and they might know, for example, well, the tornado threat is marginal, but it's certainly there. And what they can do with the PHI, with fee is to call out an area an hour ahead of the storm and offer the probability, a probabilistic estimate. How likely is it that this storm will produce a tornado over the next hour over this area? And In that way, um, that's another kind of information that could help fill in some of these gaps and um, give people a little bit more heads up. The thing that I think is so great about fee in particular is that if you live in a a vulnerable housing situation or if you have a situation where tornadoes could happen overnight, there's the potential for um, fee to link up to different dissemination systems, apps, for it to link up to um, weather radios and to give heads up notification to people that a storm that could produce a tornado is heading your way, but give you more time than you typically have in a warning. And in this event, there were some people who didn't have very much time by the time their area was warned before the storm hit. Um, We'd really like to uh, mollify that effect by giving more continuously updating information, giving information a little bit longer ahead of time so that people can start to think about and prepare for the weather that's heading their way. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news.
1: And we are back on the Weather Geeks Podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepherd from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with my colleague, Dr. Kim Coloco McLean, who's a research scientist at Sims and NSSL. But let me give you a few more facts about Kim, Uh, She was uh, with the AMS Government Sector Council. She was a member, I guess, in 2019. Uh, I, I think I mentioned that she was the first social scientist in the NOAA Office of Weather and Air Quality. She was an AMS UCAR Congressional Science Fellow and worked in the U.S. Senate. Uh, And she has a PhD in human human and hazards geography from the University of Oklahoma and a master's in meteorology from Oklahoma and a BS in economics and synoptic meteorology from Purdue. So you can certainly understand why Kim is sort of a dual expert in these fields of both meteorology and social sciences. And I know from a fact, because I know Kim personally, she's a big football fan too. She follows the Oklahoma Sooners and the Purdue Boilermakers as well. So uh, that certainly makes sense given the the universities that she's matriculated in. But I want to circle back to some of your earlier work, Kim, the super tornado outbreak of 2011. I know this was one of the first events you have really sort of dug deeply into with your research. Uh, you went into some of the areas impacted there. Um, you talked to people. What were your goals? What were you trying to accomplish in some of your early interviews with that research? And then what what did you find or learn
0: from it? The 2011 outbreak happened at this moment in my graduate career where I, having a background in sort of quantitative social sciences, I I really wanted to create these randomized controlled trials, show people at the time prototype um, information for for fee um, from the facets program when it was very, very new and I was very wedded to this idea, but my, my committee of geographers, a lot of them very deeply qualitative human geographers, said, well, the experiments are fine, but you really need some real world evidence to back up your, whatever your experiments may show. If there happened to be any big tornadoes or events in 2011, we suggest that you do a case study. And um, they told me this in December of 2010, And then April of 2011, what happens? But this utter devastation of the Southeast, um, it just happened to be a case where I had a full study prepared and ready to go. And um, I I was going with the intent of understanding the timeline. I wanted to know what information were people getting and when were they getting it? And as a geographer, how were they making sense of the, the threat as it neared their place of inhabitants, as it neared their home. Um, what I really wanted to understand was if we're going to make these gap-filling technologies, well, how will that change the decisions people make? How will that compare against what they do today? Um, it could have been the case, and I found evidence for this, that even without the advanced technologies and probabilities we might be able to offer, people were kind of making inferences for themselves and they were watching the storms head toward their location for, for a long period of time. And um, I found some nuances that were interesting in all of that, but that was the, the key and the heart of it was really trying to understand um, the public's eye to the weather and um, how the information we provided helped them shape their ideas and shape their behaviors, especially as the storm neared.
1: And I I know you've also visited South Alabama where an EF-4 tornado devastated a community last year, 2019. Uh, Obviously that and ironically, um, this was around the same date as the current Nashville uh, event that we're talking about around March 3rd. Are you finding as you start to gather multiple cases and multiple case studies, if you will, are you finding similarities across the board or is every case unique?
0: Sure. Well, I think a lot of of cases are quite unique in part because the populations involved are what I call differently adapted to severe weather threats. Part of that is because they face severe weather threats that are, are very different in, in nature. So one of the things that was so interesting about um, the March 3rd event last year in Lee County is if, if you look at Southern Alabama, their tornado climatology is quite different from central and Northern Alabama. And so they, they are accustomed to this idea that um, tornadoes are a little bit less likely and probably a little bit less severe in their area. Now, of course, you All you have to look at is um, examples like March 3rd last year and perhaps the Enterprise Tornado of 2007 to know that that's an oversimplification to a degree of the threat that they may face. But um, they still were differently adapted um, and as a result, you know, have different ways of receiving information, understanding, and contextualizing the threats to themselves. But one thing I do want to say is with all that considered, Something that our field has grown accustomed to believing is a truism is something I have never found to be true. Um, people assume that individuals can't find themselves on weather maps. This has become a, a really substantial concern in our field recently. And as a geographer whose entire research perspective is all about, well, what? how are people making sense of spatial information? I can tell you that people are really plugged in. They, they don't necessarily know that their counties around them. They don't necessarily know the county they're in. If you give them a blank map and ask them to fill it out, but they do know the town they're in. They know that town's relationship to other towns and they are able to, and they are watching broadcast meteorologists who are giving fairly sophisticated geographic information and they're understanding it and, and interpreting it well. So that's definitely yeah. a cross cut.
1: And I I have seen you push back on this because it has generated quite a bit of social media buzz, this idea. And I I believe there were actually studies done on this idea that people can't find themselves. But I I have seen you strongly sort of push back on that in social media. Um, why, Why do you think that there is this? Well, first of all, why do you think people sort of resonate with the notion that people might be able to not be able to find themselves? And then why does it create such a strong pushback in you?
0: Yeah, the, I think the reason it's so resonant is because broadcasters and even the, the weather service and emergency management, the messaging they're exposed to from the public, they're, they're mostly hearing from the subset of people who have trouble. So, you know, broadcasters and weather service forecasters will point out their their Facebook pages or their Twitter feeds, and they'll say, "But look, there. I'll put. I'll post this map, and then there will be all these questions from people asking." what they think is very trivial or easy to figure out information about the places that may be at risk. And then um, they come to me and they say, well, this is evidence that actually this is a big problem. The thing I want to encourage everyone to think about is that there's a definite selection bias in the people you're hearing from. You only hear from the people who are having difficulty, but that may still be a small proportion of the overall population. So it's not to say that there aren't people who may struggle. I I think that there may be some, um, but as an overarching big picture issue or anything that should be considered as a driver for, oh, this is why people die, it's it's certainly not. Um, And I, I think for me as a social science researcher, one of the reasons I feel so strongly about pushing back against this is there's this narrative that gets pushed in our field that people are stupid and it's because they're stupid that they die. Is because if they had just known X, Y, or Z meteorological information, then everything would have been fixed. But what we're coming to find, and um, this isn't really novel or new on my part, but the social sciences with what, what they've come to find is that truly a lot of what's going on is there are vulnerabilities. People live in vulnerable housing, they're economically um, or, or socially, or in, um, in light of their mobility d- challenged to respond. And, um, So if we overlook the inequities that actually place people in vulnerable situations, I think we run the risk of not being able to fulfill our mission when really what we want to do is help people. Um, We should take care to not wrap ourselves around things that aren't problems and really focus on the things that are meaty, thorny, but the, the important issues so that we can get people the resources and the help that they need
1: talking with uh, Dr. Kim Coloco-McLean, who's an expert on the intersection of social science issues and weather. And I I always hesitate to use this broad term, social sciences, because there's so many facets, uh, I guess pun intended, of social sciences from communication to sociology to human geography to economics. And so there are very specific aspects of that term, but we see it broadly thrown around. Now, I want to circle back to the Nashville event because... The issue of lead time has come up, and I know that there's been discussion in recent years on the whole notion of lead time. I believe the standing number out there is that we have about 14 to 15 minutes on average of lead time for tornadoes these days. There are some people that say we need an hour and that we can get to an hour, and then there are some people saying, wait, that may be a problem if we go to an hour. What are your thoughts there?
0: (laughs) I think I I asked the question, what do you mean by lead time? Does it have to come from a warning? So as much as um, this sounds like a, an obvious thing, I think on the outside, um, and there were legislators even who were arguing we need hour-long lead times for warnings. I think you can run into some problems if you um, think about just lengthening a warning, um, the primary one of which is just going to be there's going to be a huge false alarm area. Um, I think we need to examine... What what is it that warnings mean to people? What is it that the that forecasters want them to mean? What is it that our partners assume they mean? And what is it that the population assumes they mean? If everyone assumes that immediacy and is, is a part of what a warning message is, then I think we have to be mindful of that and and respect that. And we can still create information that extends into the one-hour timescale, but we don't have to call it a warning. We can call it something else. We can call it a a short-term forecast. Um, I think there's been a, even if we don't have the fee information that's designed to be the the answer to this one-hour lead time question, even if that's not deployed yet, You can look to the Storm Prediction Center right now. They're experimenting with a technique to offer information that's very similar, just without the probabilities um, in their mesoscale discussions. You'll see sometimes where there are storms that are heading into really favorable environments. And they will put out this little MD that calls out a, a small segment of a couple counties, which is about one to maybe two hours of lead time. And they'll say, you know, this storm is quite likely to produce tornadoes in this region over the next hour or two. That is very much the heart of the kind of information we're trying to provide. And um, I think if if you are someone who needs to think about evacuating your home, you need information on that time scale. So while I'm not sure that what we should do is change the warnings per se to be longer, I do think that there's a lot we can do to communicate in that timeframe that will help people a lot.
1: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast and having an excellent conversation. I knew this would be a great conversation. I've been wanting to have uh, um, Dr. Coloco McLean back on the show. She was on the television iteration of the show, and I knew with this more in-depth format that she would be an excellent guest. So, Kim, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. I want to now circle to something, you know, again, we happen to be colleagues, but we're also social media friends, and so I see some of your thoughts on various topics and various groups that we're in, for example, the was is group shout out to all the Isers out there by the way <laughs> um, but you 've been talking as we 're facing this global threat with coronavirus. Mm-hmm. I have seen you with some really interesting thoughts on some parallels at least I think you're making some parallels between some of our challenges in this field and what you 're seeing with coronavirus. Can you share some of those thoughts?
0: Sure. Well, it has been so interesting to follow this, I know, for, for everyone, but especially me uh, working at this intersection between um, risk and crisis communication. And we do a little bit of disaster epidemiology work here at the lab. Um, we're, we're looking at things like what underpins tornado fatalities and how to think about, can we, can we measure survivability? You know, we, we, don't, we don't do that very much in our field. And so I've actually been um, researching quite a bit in epidemiology lately. So as the, um, this viral epidemiology problem has, has emerged, I've been following it closely and I can't help but, um, just be fascinated by the ways that are, um, the the various entities that are trying to communicate about the threat are doing it. And then the ways that different people are responding to it. So for example. something that has been a feature of this virus is that we don't have really good information on its transmissibility. It's been suspected from the beginning that we have severely undercounted the number of people who have, um, had, have been exposed and have had contracted the virus. Um, so what we observe when we even go to calculate a fatality rate, we're we're only doing it based on the number of people who present the worst symptoms. Um, no, it's still not enormously heartening to have something like a 2 or 3% fatality rate, um, even in that context. But if there is a huge base rate of people who are actually surviving this quite well, that's important to know too. Um, we, At the same time, we in the U.S., we've had enormous difficulties of measurement because we don't have the testing kits deployed widely at all. And so um, in the last couple of days, it's become quite obvious that the virus has in fact been circling here for a number of weeks, at least in places. And, um, and yet, you know, the claims that we're hearing from our public officials are, um, things about, well, the risk is quite low. Um, there are only this handful of cases that have been verified. So the point I've been making, the thing I see that's so interesting and does resemble some problems we have is about, um, it's, it's, the ambiguity of the situation. What do you say when you have so much uncertainty, you can't even estimate how uncertain you are. Um, That's the the situation that epidemiologists face. They can't even put numbers on our risk. And um, there are some situations in meteorology where we struggle with the same. I'll, I'll offer an example. Um, say you have a hurricane that may affect um, Texas or Florida with, with sort of equal chances, and the Hurricane Center is trying to draw their hurricane cone of uncertainty graphic.
1: Wait, 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 wait. we've seen this movie before recently. <laughs>
0: We have seen (laughs) this movie before recently. This has happened. Except
1: that it was Florida and Alabama, not Texas. But I digress. Go ahead. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, the case I'm actually thinking about was from 2012. There was a tropical system called Debbie. And this is exactly what it did. It was either going to go just straight straight west into Texas or straight east back into Florida. It was either going to get picked up by the trough or not. The Hurricane Center had this terrible dilemma that they faced because – they, they really couldn't convey the, like their, their cone was, was really not about conveying the endemic uncertainty of the, the storm itself, but really it's about its historic, the, the historic performance of the hurricane center. It's how, how well they forecasted other hurricanes. And so they had to pick one. They had to just sort of pick something and say, well, we think it's gonna go east or west. And they picked one and then it ended up being the other. And it was just this huge windshield wipering. Um, Part of that difficulty is in the tools we have, you know, in the field of meteorology for describing the nature of the uncertainty that we face. Um, Our tools in that case just weren't well enough constructed. And I feel like that is the same issue that we're facing in the epidemiological community now. The tools just aren't enormously well constructed um, in the face of all of these Uncertainties, you know, of measurement and um, of of counting, and everything else. What is the message you can tell the people? Should you should you tell people that they're safe? Um, should should you tell people that there's a threat, but you really don't know that much about it? Um, it's a difficult place to be, and I, I definitely have empathy for those um, who are. in a position of trying to convey something. I think in this situation, the most important thing you can do is just be very open and transparent, say what you know, say what you don't know, and, um, you know, offer the best advice you can in light of those facts.
1: We are talking with Dr. Kim Coloco-McLean, and we are unfortunately coming too close to the end, but I I can't let Kim get out of here with a Oh, a few more things that are just on my mind. Um, so, Kim, you're really one of the colleagues that I see at the pulse of what's going on in our community in all sectors, and I, and I've told you this to your face before that I, or at least in person, and I, I view you as a a very strong leader in our field and see very um, exciting things for you going forward for all of us in representing our representing our field, I should say. So, with all of that lead up. What do you see sort of what are the one or two things that just you see going forward in our field that either concern you or excite you or both?
0: What a great question. I think one of the things that excites me is the, the Renaissance our field is experiencing in, in trying to embrace Um, the social sciences and beyond that, you know support services, just really trying to see ourselves as brokers of of information, but also as public servants and and people who can help you know forces on the ground connect all the dots and make sure that the the people um, that we are working with are the the most able to receive information, understand it, and to respond to it that they can possibly be. Um, so I see this huge Movement that that really heartens me a great deal. The the concern I think is one that many people share, and it's something that's of broader concern to our world today. Um, it's really about the issues of authority, trust, and and truthfulness. Who who is going to be known as the arbiter of accurate information in our social media laden, you know, sort of overwhelming media environment where there's just there's so many people saying so many things it's very easy to lose sight of the truth and to know what's a reasonable you know thing to say in our case what's a reasonable forecast to make and um i i don't see this problem going away anytime soon i do hope that there can be at least agreement in our field about some system of of you know, making making authorities that everyone just sort of generally follows a little bit, you know, to create a bit of a consistent message, and in some sense, try to shoot through this, you know, vague fog of, of misinformation, but I am very, very concerned about that.
1: And just quickly, you, yeah. I know there have been some efforts on this, in this regard. I, I know the NWA had sort of the idea of a digital seal, for example. I, during my presidency of AMS, I floated the idea of something like that as well to just try to at least create some levels of sort of expertise and authority in social media. But there was a lot of pushback to that for obvious reasons. People don't know what those things mean, even in the context of TV broadcasters. Where, where do you land on things like that for social media?
0: I think you know, all those efforts that if if you can start to try, at least try those things, I think that they help. Um, People are are looking for, you know, things that look like badges of credibility and accreditation amid all of this. I'm not sure that they're going to be the perfect, you know, solo panacea, but every step we can take forward is a step forward. And that that's a, you know, everything we can do is wonderful. I don't discourage any effort. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Kim, where can people find you on social media? Because I know you're out there.
0: Sure. So I do have a Twitter page. It's not very well used, though. I've, I've started to come back on a little bit. It's just um, at Kim Cloco. And um, you can also uh, friend me on Facebook. Um, I'm available, Kim Cloco McLean.
1: Okay. And you are you still with the Weather Brains crew as well?
0: I am. I am. Yes. Tell
1: us a little bit about weather, weather brains, and where people can find you and listen there.
0: Absolutely. So we record every Monday night live at um, eight thirty Central, nine thirty Eastern. If you're in Alabama, you can actually view us on your local television station. But um, you can find us otherwise at BigBrainsMedia.net. Um, just Google Weather Brains, and you'll you'll be able to find the page. And we um, we have a great following and a really enigmatic show every week led by Bill Murray, James Spann and crew. And I am the, you know, the sort of the social science contributor to that pool and very grateful that they have me on week after week. Uh,
1: big shout out to all of my friends at Weather Brains. I uh, occasionally pop on the show myself and I enjoy it as well. Uh, before we get out of here, though, I've got to do one thing. It's our Geek of the Week. And this week's Geek of the Week is Weather Channel fan Andrea Cameron, who works as a title specialist. Andrea has watched the Weather Channel since she was seven years old, and that's pretty much all she wanted to watch. She always wants to know what's going on with the weather, so she uses six different weather apps on her phone to constantly check for updates, especially when a major event is underway. Andrea is most fascinated by tornadoes and her most memorable weather event was the super tornado outbreak of 2011 she's also considering going back to school to become a meteorologist and if she does she'll have the weather geeks team cheering her on if you'd like to follow her on her social media you can check her out at twitter she's at weathernerd9211 and if you'd like to nominate yourself or someone you know to be geek of the week you can find the links on our social media pages at facebook and twitter kim thank you so much for joining us on the weather geeks podcast
0: Thanks so much for having me, Marshall. It was a delight.
1: Absolutely. And we will see you next time on the Weather Geeks Podcast. See ya.